Uh, so it's good to be back with you. And I've missed being with you last week. Uh, I know Scott and uh, Jimmy did a great job while we were away. Uh, and then, you know, Scott wasn't even preparing to preach. And I called him on Wednesday. I was like, hey, listen, what are you doing Sunday? <laughs> and so he stepped in the gap. Um, and I really appreciate that. Uh, I want to continue what I left off with three weeks ago. And so just so we're all kind of on the same page, um, I want to just kind of remind you where we've been. We've been looking at the second part of Genesis, Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 12 through 50 was written by different authors at a different time period than Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 was actually written later than Genesis 12 through 50. Genesis 12 through 50 is, is credited to Moses and his contemporaries. Genesis 1 through 11 um, is attributed to someone else that was later likely in the Babylonian captivity when it was written. But we did go back and we looked at some of the stories in Genesis 1 through 11 because to understand the importance of the rest of Genesis, we have to really understand kind of that introductory material. And Genesis 1 through 11 is kind of a preface to the story God is telling. So if you miss any of these, and even today, like I'm going to share some, a, a lot of stuff with you today, parts of the story from ancient Jewish literature that you've probably not heard before, but are certainly important um, to the story. So if you find yourself kind of getting lost or kind of your mind kind of goes in the weeds because something captures your attention, uh, go online and, and watch again, and better yet, dig in and do some research and find some of these answers for yourself. A lot of the stuff we're sharing with you, uh, not everything today, but a lot of the stuff we're sharing with you comes from the, the Bayma podcast, which is Marty Solomon. Um, some of you have jumped on there and you've been like, this is amazing. And I'm like, I know, it is amazing. So um, there's some really good backstory and history. A lot of things that we in the West, um, in a modern West, we miss uh, because for the most part, we're fairly illiterate when it comes to Scripture, especially the Old Testament. We know our kind of proof texts, but it's in the whole story that we find the beauty, the intricacy, and this incredible story God's telling that um, if you truly dive into the biblical story, here, here's what will happen. You will no longer say this is a 2,000-year-old book that doesn't matter. It is so incredibly relevant when you understand the story it's telling. And I want to share some of that with you today. But we began with just three stories in those early chapters. We looked at the creation story and we found a chiasm there. I'm not sharing any chiasms today, although what we are talking about today is actually part of a larger chiasm we'll get to in a few weeks. Uh, but we've talked about chiasms, that kind of treasure story in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew literature, usually in poetry, but not just in poetry, in which the structure of the story points to something that the author really wants you to understand. And we found that in the creation story, um, that was really pushing to this place of seasons in life and understanding seasons and the importance of different times and the need for different things. And we saw that not just in the chiasm, but also in just the layout of the seven days of that story. God worked for six days, but there was a season of rest, of rejuvenation, of worship, of thankfulness. Then we looked at the story of the fall, and we typically focus on, well, what did they do wrong, and what are all the problems we have? But we found there was a chiasm there that pointed to the central question God was asking then and is still asking us today, and it points to the question of, where are you? As God was walking through the garden and Adam and Eve were hiding, uh, they were naked and afraid and ashamed, uh, God says, where are you? And that's what he's still asking us today because he wants us to be with him. That doesn't change anything in the story, but the emphasis of the story is not on shame or punishment. The emphasis is on redemption and recreation. Uh, so then we looked at the story of the Tower of Babel, and what we found was that humanity had moved, or actually we hit the, we, we, the story of the flood first. Um, and then we did the Tower of Babel, and we found that what humanity was doing, evil was growing. And it started with the serpent or the, the Satan that was in the garden, and then it spread to Eve, and then to Adam, to their families, it spread to their children, and then it began spreading all over the world, and to the point where the story tells us everybody was only thinking of evil all the time. I and mean, they just wanted to be away from God, didn't want to have anything to do from God. And then Nimrod, the king of Babylon, decides, I'm going to build this tower. It's going to be a testament to our greatness. We are God now. 
And so this, we find in that story God coming in and confusing their language. And again, God saying, you are a people for me. I want you to be with me. I'm not going to let you continue in this direction. And I'm going to destroy this tower, scatter you into all of these different nations. Because it is only in journeying in that way that you will find yourself back to me. So again, we find over and over, not stories of just judgment or anger, which some of us grew up in that in that religious setting and system. But instead, this constant draw of God saying, I want you back. I want you to be with me. Real life, good life is in following the plan that was there from the beginning, not what is, has happened. Um, so now we come into the story of Genesis 12, and we have the introduction of this character, Abram, who will eventually become Abraham. He's listed as one of the great heroes of our faith, the, the first patriarch, the kind of father of our faith. And sometimes we look at these characters, and the reason we're doing this whole series is because I want you to look at Scripture differently. And I want you to look at these characters differently. We look at these characters often as these bastions of faith, as things that we, as a standard that we are supposed to look for, and what we're going to find in this story that Abraham was a man of faith, but he was also a flawed man and some of the times that we read in scripture that these awesome men of faith they do really bad things but we assume they must not be that bad because they're awesome men of faith but there are places in scripture that we have to simply say he really missed it there like he here abraham got it but here abraham really actually missed it and because he missed it here it's actually that is going to filter down and his children are going to have a problem too but what we're also going to find is that Abraham was someone who was willing to learn from his mistakes. But more than anything, what we're going to see is that God, even in the midst of our mistakes and our failings, God is continually faithful. So, there's a lot that we can go through. When I, We started with the first question of why Abram. We had to reference um, a midrash. Do you remember what a midrash is? Anybody remember? Uh, at, yeah. Ashley knows because she's 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 like she's memorized the whole Bama podcast. By the way, she's uh, if you have any questions, go see her. What is a midrash? So we have our scriptures, and a midrash we would might we might use the language of commentary on the scriptures. Oral traditions passed down from one generation to the next till eventually someone wrote them down. We looked at the story of Abraham, and we, we come to this place of Abraham marrying Sarah. And we had to go to a, a midrash that was very well known in ancient Jewish times. We ourselves don't tend to focus on those, but Jesus would have known these midrashes. His followers would have known these midrashes. The early church very much knew these midrashes. And we found that in the story of Abraham taking a wife, he did something very unexpected. The firstborn who could choose anyone to marry, chose to marry Sarah, and did not find out later she was barren, but knew from the very beginning she was barren. And we find that in the Midrash. And so one of the things we walked away from last week, and this is um, something that Marty Solomon said, he said, Abram was more interested in caring for someone else's needs than his own, and God immediately entered his story. So we find in Abraham, not just a man who happened to be married to someone who's barren, but instead someone who is in need that he knows he will never have children with her, which was everything for the firstborn to continue the legacy of their family. He gave that up because here was someone who needed to be loved, needed someone to be in their life. And he said, I will give up my legacy. I will sacrifice what is my even responsibility because here's someone who is in need. And Marty Solomon is so good to say this is the point in which God enters into his story. Interestingly, what we're going to find, because I'm going to share another midrash with you today, God has been working with Abram in some really crazy ways. And just to give you kind of a, a hint um, the second part of why, or just to finish the first part of why Abram, uh, we basically said God can work with people that are willing to sacrifice for the good of others, which certainly sounds a lot like the second greatest commandment. First is to love God with all our heart, our soul, our strength, and our minds. And the second is like it, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And we've seen that over the last few months together, places that we, in the Western mindset, interpret very individualistically. It's about us, it's about me, it's not about us, it's about me, and if, if what's good for me is good for us, then great, but primarily I'm worried about me. And we find throughout the story, when we stop reading it with a Western mindset, we find God saying over and over again, this is about us, not about you, not about me, it's about us. God could certainly say it's about me. But we certainly can't say that. But we find that this was part of Abram's story. And and just to let you know, the second question, I believe, um, or part two of why did God choose Abram is simply because he was willing to follow God. Now, I, I give that to you now because this is usually our big takeaway from this story. Um, I also give it to you now because one of the reasons that the world believes that the Bible is no longer relevant to them is because we have developed these phrases that just are not compelling for people today. There's a reason that a lot of our young people do not believe that the Bible is relevant today, and it's wholly the fault of those who have come before them who take these little phrases and these simplistic thoughts, and we try to apply them to a very complex life. The story of Abram is very complex, and it is certainly that he was willing to follow God, but it's way more complex than that because his life was complex. And the story for you today is, sure, you should follow God, but it's way more complex than that. So I want you to stay with me. I want you to follow through. I'm going to share a lot of history from the Midrash that you've probably not heard before about Abram, but it speaks to a deeper, greater uh, place as to what the story God is telling. All right, so let's go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to begin with verse 1. We're going to read this, but really we're most, we're going to read through verse 9, but really we're most interested um, through verse 4. Um, and then I want to tell you this story. I want to share with you how this has impacted me. Uh, and then we're going to go eat some barbecue. Is that all right? Yes, me too. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now when we read this story, it is very easy to pull out the things that you have read or heard about Abram. We've talked about the lullaby effect every single week because this is one of the primary stories. If you grew up in the church, you grew up hearing in Sunday school. And so when you hear the story of Abram or Abraham, you think, I know that story. The lullaby effect says you've become so familiar with it that you've missed what the story is really about. Something we hear so often, we just dismiss or we go to whatever punchline we heard about it or whatever Cliff's notes we do and we don't actually engage with the scripture. And if you'll remember, in ancient Near Eastern thought and teaching, teaching was not the way we do it here. Learning was not the way we do things here. They would not be in favor of our school system. They would not be in favor of this environment right here, me telling you this story, because for them, learning doesn't happen by a transfer of information from one person to the next. I have the facts, I give you the facts, now you have the facts. That was not the way they taught, that was not the way they learned. In fact, rabbis were famous for teaching with questions and answering questions with other questions because in their minds the way that you learn something is by discovering it yourself 
And this is one of the problems we have in the West when we are kind of headline-groomed people, soundbite people. Give me the facts. I'll make a quick judgment. i got other things to do. But for them, really understanding Scripture and understanding what God wants to do in the story He's trying to tell in the big picture and in your life only happens through your own personal discovery. Now, we've tried to mitigate that in different ways, and we'll do interactive series. And even today, if you want to stop me and ask a question, you can ask a question, and I'll do my best to share what I know. But when you begin to have a question about Scripture, understand that is part of the Holy Spirit working within you. The Holy Spirit prompts questions. We want the Holy Spirit to give us answers, but many times He he gives us a question that we go on a journey to figure out what is the answer. And in doing that, that's when we truly learn. That's why we'll joke, teachers will joke, you don't actually know something until you're able to teach it. That's because we think we know things because we know things about things, but then when I have to lay it out for you, I may not actually understand it well enough. And when you go through the process of trying to teach it to someone else, you go through your own discovery to make sure you understand what this is all about. So as we come to this, the point is to discover the point of God's story in all of Scripture is not to say, just memorize this and do it, and you're good. And I grew up that way, and probably a lot of you grew up that way, but that is not how the, the Scriptures that are, are the living, authentic uh, Word of God that is still transforming lives today. That happens because you enter into the story, you dive in, and you explore. And in doing so, you learn something about God, you learn something about people, and you learn something about yourself. It is in the exploration that the beauty of Scripture unfolds. That's why when we simply say, go read your Bible, you may try, and you may read a few days, and then be like, I'm done. And that's because it hasn't captured your imagination. And it's probably because of this lullaby effect. Well, I know what's going to happen. Or you hit a genealogy. We found um, two weeks ago that the beauty of the story of of Abram choosing somebody was found in digging into a genealogy and then understanding that through a midrash. But if you just read those few verses, you'd be like, oh, okay, interesting. Not sure I ever needed to know that, but okay. But when we dive in, our imagination is perked, and now all of a sudden we are discovering something, and it's like, wow, Abram? was willing to give up his future, perceived future, for someone, and that's the kind of person God wants to work with. What does it look like for me to put others before myself right now? Maybe God's not entering into my story the way I wish he would because I'm still just focused on me. Now, that's very relevant for today. Because I don't know many people who say, do you know what is really good about culture? Our concern for other people. I don't know anybody who says that. But the Bible says when you enter into the story, the kind of person God wants to work with is concerned with other people. And the church doesn't really have a good reputation in this way. We tend to be concerned about ourselves, and even within ourselves, our subsect of ourselves that are just like us and look like us and talk like us and read the same version of the Bible we read and think about the stories the same way we do, there's really not this joy and discovery with other people who may see things differently because that just feels dangerous. And I will just tell you, if you're going to follow Jesus, it is dangerous. Our attempts to make it palatable and easy and comfortable and we've got no problems and we're just going to live with heaven on earth is not the Bible. There is danger throughout, but in the danger there is beauty, there is adventure, and there is a God who is active and says, I'm with you and you are going to see things you never saw before, you're going to hear things you never heard before, and the beauty of the true all creation is going to be open to you. And those who have found it have found a treasure. All right. I haven't even gotten in the Midrash yet. So we come to this story. Um, If we just look at the basic information, the basic text, what we find, next slide, God said, go from your father's house to somewhere. Now we could just say and wrap this up and go have some barbecue, which I am tempted to do, but 
We could just say this whole story is about someone who when God says to go, you don't even need to know where it is. You should just go. Amen. Bless our food. We're out. But if we do that, we miss the story God's really telling from Abram. We also miss why was Abram the one after the fall of the Tower of Babel that God said, these are the people I'm going to do something lasting and different in the world. Why him? Sure, you could say following is enough, but there's so much more to this story, it shouldn't be enough. But sure, that's a part of the story. It's an important part of the story. God said, go from your father's house and go somewhere. Now, in ancient Near Eastern family life and just the way that you thrive, we've talked in the past before that children were not just like something you did because you were supposed to. You didn't have kids because you wanted to go buy, you know, a car seat. And I know when we started having kids, I don't know, y'all remember the Eddie Bauer years? Like everything was Eddie Bauer, green and tan. Everything was tan. So everybody had the Eddie Bauer diaper bag and the Eddie Bauer, you know, car seat. And you could even get the Eddie Bauer Ford Explorer. I mean, you could get Eddie Bauer anything. And and so, and, and today I know it's like all European stuff, right? Like I don't even know what, I don't even, probably can't even pronounce whatever the cool baby stuff is today but you you know it it was not about that it was not about nesting it was not about cute pictures children were really two things in your life they were your legacy and they were how you lived because families stuck together in an agrarian culture and the more kids you had the more workers you had families stuck together we're in this weird season, and some of you are entering it, and some of you are past it, in which we have kids who are in college. Jake's a senior this year. It's hard to believe he's graduated college this year. And then he's going to decide what he wants to do. Emma, she's starting her sophomore year. Um, Jonathan's still in high school, but in a couple of years he'll be in college. And typically what we do today when we think about our future life is, what do I want for me? what I want to go to school for, what I want to do. And kids, I mean, they scatter, right? They go to wherever, and they go live their lives, and we hope they come home some, and, and we, tr- we, we hope we're going to see them, but they scatter. But this is not the way they lived. Instead, your life sustainability was in your family. Like, that's where wealth was. That's where safety and security was. That's where land ownership was. Whenever you brought in crops, the way that you grew the family business was by having more people to work the land. And while you could hire others, if you have kids, then they help work the land. You had responsibilities to teach them and to train them. But in an ancient Near Eastern culture, they themselves would stay, not leave. You help your father. And then when your father passes away, it all comes to the firstborn son. And if something happens to him, then it passes on to the next. And so you have this legacy, but this is also how you lived. And that family dynamic was so strong, whatever the the patriarch did, the whole family did. So if uh, the patriarch decided to follow a god, the whole family followed the god. If the patriarch decided we're going to grow a different crop, the whole family grew a different crop. It was very much tied into us. It is our family. We are stronger together. We need each other. But today, we don't typically understand the stories in that sense because in our story today, it's just about what do I want? What do I want to do? That's not the way they thought. That doesn't mean that the way we do it is wrong. It just means it's different. And to understand the story, we need to understand how they did it. Now in the Midrash, we find the history of Abram. And this is what I want to share with you. A few other things, and then I'm going to, I'm going to wrap up. In the Midrash, in the book of Yasher, there is a history of the story of Abram. And what you're going to find is that this story sounds very familiar. So this was a commentary that the Jewish rabbis would have passed down person to person to person until somebody wrote it down, and then there would be a scroll and somebody could read. And so this story is how we have it today. And if you remember, we back up to the time of the Tower of Babel. The king of Babylon was Nimrod, and he was trying to basically say, we need no God. We are God. And we're going to build a tower for ourselves, and we want to have nothing to do with God. 
And so God comes and frustrates those plans because he doesn't want all of civilization to gather around this idea that Nimrod has. He wants them to separate, and in so doing, maybe they will come to find him. So along comes this man. His name is Terah. And if you remember our, our story from a couple of weeks ago, Terah was Abram's dad. Now, Terah himself was not a follower of Yahweh. Terah was, according to the Midrash, you know, chief executive of idol worship for King Nimrod. He had prestige, he had title, he had wealth. And Terah was to have a son, and his firstborn son was who? Abram. That's right, keep the, keep the wheels turning. He was to have a son. And King Nimrod, according to the book of Yashur, says that the stargazers that would uh, tell King Nimrod what was to happen, tell the future, said, Terah is going to have a son who is going to dethrone you. You should kill him. And so King Nimrod says, well, I'm not giving up my throne. I will tell Terah he needs to kill Abram when he's born. Terah, loving his son and not wanting to do that thing, instead he sends Abram and his mother to a cave for 10 years. And Abram lives in a cave for 10 years of his life. Eventually, as he gets older, uh, Abram says, this is not good enough, and I'm not staying here. The Midrash also tells us, that Abram was a descendant of Shem, the son of Noah. And so at, when he was 10 years old, Abram and his mother went to live with Noah and Shem. You think, how was that possible? So much time has passed because Noah lived to almost 900 years. So he lived under the tutelage, according to the Midrash, of Noah. There he would have learned about Yahweh. There he would have learned about the flood. There he would have learned about the Tower of Babel if he had not already heard about it. And for the next 29 years of his life, he would sit in the family of Noah and Shem. Now, eventually he comes back, and he joins his father's business. Enough time has passed. By the way, can you think of another story in the Bible in which a king is, feels threatened about being dethroned, and so he wants to kill whoever might dethrone them? Can you think of any other stories like that? Saul? But Saul didn't really know who was going to dethrone him. Jesus and Herod, right? So he comes back. He joins in the family business thinking, ah, Nimrod, he's forgotten about it now. He doesn't even know who I am. He enters into the family business according to the Midrash, and he begins kind of working with his dad, and his dad is a creator of idols. All of the idols that Nimrod worshipped um, the chief being the god of the sun. And Nimrod says, is that Abram? Uh, yes, that is Abram. You were supposed to kill him. And so the Midrash says that Nimrod fired up a fire, fiery for, furnace and threw Abram in that he did not burn up. Does that sound like a story from somewhere else? Now, I want you to know this Midrash is not like this neat, interesting story that, that somebody cooked up 10 years ago. Like This followed along with the Scriptures. This was something that they would have been intimately um, familiar with. But he did not burn up. Now, interestingly, Abram has a brother. His name is Haran. Now, do you remember the story of who Abram married? He married the two daughters of who? Somebody tell me. Haran. So he has a brother. He marries his niece. Haran is stuck on the fence because in this time, in ancient Near Eastern culture, you stuck with your family. Your father's wealth becomes yours. Terah is wealthy. Prestige. Uh, he has status. He is the chief idol maker, chief idol worshiper of the whole world for them at that point. If he sticks with Nimrod, he's good. He's golden. He has a future. If he stays with Abram, not much future. And interestingly, the Midrash says that when uh, Abram was thrown into the fiery furnace and he did not burn up, he made a choice that I am with Abram, I am not with Nimrod. So King Nimrod said, fine, and threw Haran into the fiery furnace. And this is why 
Sarah and Milka needed husbands. Because Haran pledged his support for Abram and Yahweh, and Nimrod killed him. Now, does this change the story in the call issue to Abram at this point? Because most of the time we read these stories and we think, well, Terah, he's got some land and they're just kind of minding their own business. They've got kind of their family trade and they probably grow corn or soybeans or peanuts. I don't know. They probably grow something or maybe they raise cattle and then they probably trade and and they've got these big fences and they just kind of do their life together. And, And Abram could have all that if he just stayed. But does it change the story that the only reason... Terah has any of that stuff is because he's leading worship to a false god or gods. And now if Abram stays, the king is going to kill him. Does that change the story for you? See, this is why we cannot simply read these stories and go, God just wants us to follow him. Because in a complex life, in a complex culture, when you say that to somebody, it feels untenable, unfeasible, too simplistic. Just follow God. My life is falling apart. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I I don't know if I should stay in this job. My marriage is just a shambles. How many times have we said, just follow God? People walk away from faith all the time because of it. So we dive into the story. The story matters. When we dive in and we explore it, the exploration matters when we in a western mindset say the only thing you need to know is john 3 16 and that's all that matters you will never know god if that's all you care about because god is telling a bigger story so what do we what what do we do with this by the way, that midrash, midrash continues, and it's really this incredible story, which is why you, you do this, this would be considered, a midrash to us is considered extra-biblical content. And you do have to be careful with extra-biblical content. Like you don't want, there are some things you don't want to read because it's just false. But there are some things that are very good and helpful. Hey, it's going to be a few more minutes, guys, by the way. They're getting ready to sing another song, but they don't realize many notes I have today. <laughs> I'm not almost done. I am almost done. I am almost done. But it's only 11.23. I've still got seven minutes before I start thinking about closing up. So, anyways. So this interesting story continues. And uh, one more thing about that. Um, extra biblical content that does not support, uh, that is not supported by the rest of Scripture should be avoided. Like, we don't just read something because it's interesting. I mean, we've got plenty of that kind of theology going on right now. The, the fastest growing theology uh, in the church today is, is the theology that God will give you whatever you want, which is like the dumbest thing you could ever believe if you've read anything um, in Scripture. Like, but, but churches are exploding, even in our own community, under this theology that says, you know what, God will give you what you want. And just... I'm going to chase a rabbit just for a second because I want to prove this point to you because this is so prevalent. Let's say, um, let's say Nikki, Nikki, I'm going to pick on you because you're right up here up front. Let's say my theology is, and I come to faith in Christ believing God will give me what I want if I'm just faithful. Let's say Nikki and I work for the same employer. And let's say our employer's downsizing and they say, Nikki, Mark, we can only keep one of you. And we both start praying. God, I really need this job. And I'm praying this fervently and I'm trying to do everything I can to get God's favor. And I'm saying, God, I just, God, if I lose this job, I don't know what I'm going to do. But what do you think Nikki's doing? So when we enter into this theology that says God wants to give you what you want, who is God? Whose prayer is God going to answer? We say you could say, well, to be fair, God just won't answer either one. But that doesn't seem very God-ish, right? But instead, what if there's a bigger story that God wants to do in removing both of us from that job, and yet neither of us is praying for that? 
The Bible does say God will give you the desires of your heart, but what it implies is that it's when those desires are tuned to God's desires. All right, anyways. Anytime you hear somebody say God wants to give you what you want, um, you need to run. It's false theology. It's false teaching. And it is prevalent and popular. Popular, popular. And it's one of the reasons people are leaving the faith left and right. Because they realize it doesn't work. It doesn't take long to realize that doesn't work. Anyways, so this other little piece of his history I wanted to share with you um, comes to um, really what will eventually be a big change for Abram's father, Terah. Because Terah is, again, he's the chief idol maker. He makes them out of stone. He makes them out of precious metals. Um, he, and he's got a workshop, and he leads people in worship, and he has all these things. And Abram is absolutely convinced, likely because of his experience with Noah and Shem, he is absolutely convinced Yahweh is the one true God. And he enters into his workshop, and he begins smashing all the idols save one. And he takes the axe, this is what the Midrash says, he takes the axe that he used to smash all the idols but one and he put it in the hands of the one idol that was left. And Terah walks in, he's like, what has happened? And Abraham enters the story and says, well, I think it's clearly obvious what has happened. This God um, used the axe to destroy all the other gods. And the Midrash says, Terah said, that's impossible I made all of these with my hands. They can't do that. And Abram looks at Terah and says, then why do you worship them? (laughs) It's an amazing story in the Midrash. We begin to explore the scriptures. And that is one of the reasons in which Terah, eventually in this story, leaves his post, leaves his position, and will join Abram on his journey. Following the one true God. Midrash is awesome. I love it. I love it. I'm not sure what. Yeah, that's the right side. Next slide. God was inviting Abram, man who demonstrated that he would put others before himself to follow him and what this story tells us to be rescued by him. Because this is not simply a story of Abraham had it good, but he gave it all up to follow God. Abraham had it bad too. And God was not just calling him to follow and to build a nation and to give him this land and all these other wonderful things that the story tells us he's going to receive. God is rescuing Abram from a kingdom bent on killing him. And I would say this story is more close uh, is is more closely aligned with the gospel than a whole lot of stories about the gospel. Because the gospel is about is an invitation to follow and an invitation to be rescued. This is one of the reasons that people don't actually begin to follow Jesus until they feel that they need a rescue. When the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit convicting us, it's not just so that we would say, I just, I am so bad. God, I'm sorry, I'm so bad. But there is a place in which the Holy Spirit continues to prick our hearts to say, oh, we need a rescue. I don't want to do this anymore. I need a rescue. It's often why Jesus went to the downcast, downtrodden outcasts of society and said, I have good news for you. I have an invitation to follow me and I have an invitation for you to be rescued. And what I've discovered in doing ministry now for a long time (laughs) is that if you don't have these two things, you will not follow Jesus for your entire life. It will not happen. If you do not feel the need for rescue, then you will always put him as a piece of your life, but he really won't be someone that transforms your life because I'm okay without him. But if there is a heaven, I wouldn't mind having an extra ticket. But when you feel like you need to be rescued, now the good news is that there is life that is available, abundant life for those people that find the rescuer. But then there's also that second call that we find for Abram, and that is, follow me. So there are people that will want a rescue, but they do not like the place that God wants them to go, and so they reject his teachings, or they reject 
a willingness to follow him. Well, that's too harsh, or I don't like that. And I have found that most of the harsh understandings of Scripture, uh, some of them are harsh, let's be honest. Judgment is harsh, but most of the places that seem harsh are misunderstood because they're really all about a rescue. In fact, the whole story of the Bible is about a rescue. The whole story of Scripture is a rescue story. Jimmy talked about the stories behind the story and that there's a big story. The real big story behind it all is a rescue and an invitation to follow him because if you remember the chiasm we discovered in the fall, it all pointed to this simple question of God walking around saying, where are you? Because the desire is that we are with him again. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be a moment in which you need a rescue, you feel the need for rescue, and then there's going to be an invitation to follow, and you will have to decide, am I willing to follow or not? Religion says, I can have it all without having to change anything. But Jesus says, that is worthless. Follow me, don't follow me, don't ride the fence. And we find that in this story of Abraham, in which so many times, and I've preached it myself, just follow God, open-ended, whatever. Well, I don't know what that means. Well, I don't know what he's telling me to go. I don't know where he's telling me to go. But we find this man who seems to embody the very basic components of the gospel, a man who says, I will put others before myself. And I will go where he wants me to go. And I'm in desperate need of a rescue, and he's rescuing me. Now maybe your rescue isn't the same as his rescue. I don't know if any kings are trying to kill you or not. I don't think I have anybody trying to kill me, but the rescue was important to me when I was 15 years old. And I was doing life because at 15 you're trying to fit in and you want to be popular and you want friends and you don't want to feel empty or lonely. And I found the ways that I was fitting in and having friends and, and all that was just, ter- it was just poisoning me. I didn't know where to go or what to do. And I needed a rescue. Now my testimony compared to others' testimony is, uh, mine is very mild. Others have stories of rescue that are way more severe. But it's still the same. There's a man who's willing to put other people before himself. Do we do that? There's a man willing to go even when he didn't know where he was going because that's where God was going. He was a man who knew he was in need of a rescue and he knew Yahweh was a rescuer. God was inviting Abraham, a man who demonstrated that he would put others before himself to follow him and be rescued by him. The interesting thing about him in this story as well is that instead of being angry with God that he was born into the situation, that he was born to Terah, who clearly was a false worshiper and false teacher, and now he's been chased his entire life, lived first 10 years of his life in a cave, rather than being angry with God, he simply said, God, I want, I want to be where you are and I need your rescue. I'll go where you want me to go in spite of my circumstances, even though my circumstances have been difficult. What we found in the story of the Tower of Babel and what we find in the story of Abraham, because Abraham sparks um, what is going to become the new covenant, we'll get to that later, that God wants us to keep moving towards him. This is what God is doing in your life right now. If your life is falling apart, it may be because the tower is coming down because he wants you to be freed up to move towards him. Abraham kept moving. We we see this, this theme throughout the scripture. Abraham kept moving. The Hebrews would settle in Egypt during a famine. So they moved from their place and then they became enslaved. And then God sent a rescuer. And then they began moving out of Egypt And then they still weren't seeking God, and so he made them continue to move in the wilderness for 40 years until he sent them to this place of Canaan, and which is where Abram went to begin with. The whole story of the Exodus is about them getting back to the place that Abram was already in. And they kept moving. 
They eventually would settle in. They would have uh, settled in as the nation of Israel. They, be, they would settle into Jerusalem. And then Rome would come in. And all of the New Testament is Rome's occupation of Israel. And so we have what has been known as the diaspora or the diaspora or the spreading or going out in which God now uses Rome to spread out the gospel from Israel for the rest of the world because God has continued to have this theme keep moving towards me. You don't, Siri, you don't know. You don't know. (laughs) So what does this look like? How do I wrap this up quickly? What does it mean to follow God? Isn't that the question? And I could tell you it means coming to church and writing tithe checks and building buildings and podcasts and cool worship music and but that isn't that all just really disappointing if that's what it's all about? What does it really mean to follow God? Well, I guess this means I need to read the Bible. Uh, yeah. But not read it so that you get something from God. Read it because it is such a compelling story. You want this to be your story. And once you reach that point that this is going to be my story, you cannot escape the beauty of Scripture. Like, it draws you in. I mean, it's like a carrot on the end of a stick. Like, oh, i got to get more of this. It draws you in. But following God, it, it means I do want to know what He says and what He thinks. But it also means I want to know what's important to him, and I want that to be important to me. If he goes somewhere, I want to be where he is, and if he tells me to go somewhere, I want to be there too. It means we we aren't going to follow any other gods, and we hit on this in different ways. Let me be very clear. Many Christians today follow the God of the Republican or Democratic parties. That is not God. If your hope is in our political parties... Have you been paying attention for the last 200 years of our nation's history? They are not the hope for the world. But too many people believe that if we can get our party to push my religious principles, the world will be better for it. And that's how we got the Crusades. And that's how we got Hitler. And if you go back and look at Hitler, you'll find that Hitler started his campaign to eradicate anyone not like him with Jesus. He says, there's one God and it's me and you worship anybody else and it is not me. And we want to know that and we won't worship other gods. But there are other gods, let's be honest. There's entertainment, comfort, wealth. I mean, I could get to meddling. But the barbecue's getting cold. I I wrote down in my notes his word, his ways, his priorities, his story. Those are the things that draw us to follow him. So what is holding you back from following him? Would be the question that I would leave you with. If you don't feel like you're following, okay? It's not for me to say whether you're following or not. If you yourself inwardly do not feel like you're following why and maybe a better question is this what keeps you stuck where you are because if you're following you're not staying in the same place why are you stuck is there something about his teachings that are like that's just too hard or i'm just not really sure this is all real anyways or you know we have plenty of reasons that people are leaving the church right now i mean we have the the people that are supposed to be the teachers of our faith that are just victimizing people left and right. Victimizing them physically. Victimizing them sexually. Victimizing them financially. All for selfish personal gain because they have not come to the place where they say it's about us because in their mind it's about them. And some of our most prolific um, authors, speakers, and preachers have demonstrated that all along it was really just about them. And can I judge them for it? I have the same tendencies is by the grace of God that I've chosen to follow Him and I hope that they will choose to follow Him too. You don't stand in judgment. Jesus said, you work on your own log 
in your eye before you work on the speck in theirs. But we also recognize we've not really been living this story out well. What's keeping you stuck? I could stop. I just want to share this with you. And then I really, I, I've said this seven times today. And I, this is important good stuff. I hope you think it's good stuff. I think it's good stuff. I don't know if you do or not. Scott talked about collective trauma. This is one of the reasons we're stuck. But John Eldridge um, is talking a lot about this. I, I remember John Eldridge from all the story stuff, which I thought was fascinating, but I've never been a huge John Eldridge fan, but I'm really a huge fan of what he's talking about with his collective trauma stuff. Um, indicators of trauma, he mentions, that we all have going through the pandemic, but he's quick to say, you're not just feeling this way because of the pandemic. You're feeling this way because you were traumatized before the pandemic got here. The pandemic just further traumatized us. We were distracted, we were busy, we were not healthy we're not feeding ourselves good things and we were already just really at a low point the pandemic just kind of nailed it home and so we're all just kind of struggling here it's been super helpful for me understanding myself i feel these things understanding you because i know you're feeling these things these are some of the indicators of trauma he gives mental fragmentation does anyone feel that (laughs) you feel like it's hard to keep a thought like you're just jumping from place to place it's just hard to stay focused. You forget what you're doing. You go in the room and you're like, I, you know, we were talking, we were joking earlier. Where's my glasses? Well, they're on your face. You know, do you, do you have those kind of mental fragmentation places? A loss of a sense of time, like time just flies by. Um, exhaustion. We're just tired all the time. Uh, you know, we just have a lack of grace for irritating people. And, and I'm not saying we had a lot of grace for irritating people before, but what we did have is gone. And it's like, we're irritated, and we're going to let you know about it. And do you feel these things? Man, I feel them. I feel them. He goes on and he talks about people just don't want to be in the room. How many times, like, we were texting about the, like, kickball is my favorite thing we do all year. We laugh and have fun, and we are silly, and we are a spectacle when we show up. And I love it. We have our big pink shirts and our big angry flamingos, and I love it. We have fun, and then we show up in all our pink shirts to Dairy Queen, and we get Dairy Queen, and everybody looks at us like, you people are crazy. And we're like, I know. It's awesome, isn't it? You should be crazy like us, right? And so it is fun. But Sunday, we were, you know, are there going to be games? Are there not going to be games? And we were like, you know, I wouldn't feel bad if there weren't any games tonight. John Elder says this. He says, there's a reason that when your plans get canceled, you're relieved. Because you're exhausted. And you don't want to be around other people. Everyone, he says, is still... This is the next slide, by the way. Everyone... Two slides. Next two slides. Everyone is still expecting and asking for 100% of us, but we don't have it to give. It's all over, right? The pandemic's over. You should be just fine as can be. Fine as frog's hair, as a friend of mine says. We don't feel fine. Deidre and I, we've talked about this just in serving and volunteering here. At times we're like, gosh, we just we need more help. It's like, yeah, we get it. Like, I'm not sure they've got it to give sometimes. Because I'm not sure we've got it to give sometimes. Because we're just exhausted. I don't have, I'm not, I, I can't produce, I'm not at 100%. This means we need to be given more leeway to each other, but instead we get, we have no grace, we get irritated and we fly off the handle, we break relationships, we go to other churches, we, whatever. He says we become more suspicious of each other. We see each other as enemies, which is exactly what's happening in news events and headlines and our parties know this. That's how they solidify your support They make the other group your enemy. But I've got news for you. The Republicans are not all wrong on everything, and neither are the Democrats. But they want you to believe that they are. We become suspicious of each other, and yet we still have a longing for connection. We're isolating ourselves because we're tired. But part of the answer is that we come together, but we don't feel we have the energy to do that. And so we're in this limbo, this liminal space in which we're stuck. This is what Ephesians 3, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Who does not want that right now? 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And how many of us feel like we are filled with the fullness of God right now? Probably not many. But the promise is there. Oh, why am I sharing all this with you? This is two sermons, right? Because this is what it looks like to follow God and to be rescued by Him. This is what it means to follow. He goes on, and Scott talked about this. I'm not going to rehash everything Scott said. You can go back and listen. He talks about the shallows, the midlands, and the depths. We all have all three, but we live. most people live all of their lives in the shadows. This is where we're distracted. This is why you're thinking about, did I leave the stove on? What are we going to do for lunch? I'm not sticking around for barbecue. Uh, what are we going to do? You know, do we, which, what, what time do we go to the movie today? I mean, it's just bang, 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 all these things. Oh, that email I forgot to send. Or I really need to mow the grass. Or, gosh, I wonder what next series on Netflix we should watch. Those are the shallows, the things that just come at us and our mind just kind of goes into all of these places. It's that fragmentation in which I just have all this busyness going on in my mind. Those are the place where people live. That's why sound bites work and why headlines work and why most people don't read the story before they say, that's exactly how I feel. They don't even know what the story was about because I'm so busy. I've got to get on to the next thing. He says, these are the shallows. This is where most people live our lives. You will not re-energize or experience the fullness of God in the shallows. He said, then there's the midlands, and the midlands are the things that really matter to us. Are my kids doing okay? Is my retirement plan, I mean, no, your retirement plan is not doing okay right now, but is my retirement plan okay? I mean, we really need to fix this leak in our house. Our parents are sick. Like important things that are deep concerns for your life. These are the Midlands. And we will sometimes go there because they demand our attention. But it's in the depths where Jesus is. And the depths require intentionality, time, focus, exploration. Just time with Him. It's where hope lives, joy Love, that's where it lives. Happiness lives can live in the shallows, but joy lives in the depths. It's where Christ dwells and strengthens us. And if we're not willing to dive deep into the depths, even what we've talked about today, it could either be life-giving or just, eh. Are you living in the shallows or the depths will make that determination for you. We'll talk about this later, but some of his suggestions are developing a life rhythm that's healthy. And if you'd like to read more about what John Eldridge is saying about this, he came out with a book called Resilient, which is helpful, but he says the answer is usually in developing a rule of life or a rhythm of life that is healthy. And he wrote a book about that before the pandemic called Take Your Life Back, where he talks about things like, um, don't go to bed looking at Facebook. And the first thing you wake up in the morning, don't open Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever your thing is. Don't do that because that robs you of life. Take time. You need time to enter into the depths. Finally, for the invitation for following, if you, if you haven't been following, I want you to know there's always an invitation. Not judgment, an invitation. If you haven't been interested in doing the things that lead to following, like praying, meditating, reading Scripture. I'm just not interested in that stuff. Okay. Following starts with taking a step. What step do you need to take? Or even if it's a half step, or even a shuffle. Following starts with a step. Don't look five miles down the road and think, i got to do that today. Just take the step. I find that God is very clear. And most of you already probably know what that step would be. One of the things as far as building relationships with each other that John Eldridge says is they determined early on, say yes to every invitation. If somebody invites you to lunch, go to lunch. If somebody invites you to their house, go to their house. If somebody says we're having a party, go to the party, even if you don't want to, because that is also where life is found. Four themes we're going to find throughout Abraham's life and family. Um, you've seen 
You've seen some of these already. Um, we're going to continue to see these themes. If you come back and you stay with us for the rest of this, uh, the first one is this. God works with those willing to give up their lives for others. We're going to see that theme over and over and over again. Second theme we're going to see throughout the rest of Genesis 12 through 50, God works with those willing to follow him even when it's hard. Um, the third theme we're going to see over and over and over again, Abraham was willing to learn, grow, and mature. He didn't do everything right, but he was willing to grow. And the fourth thing that is really the overarching thing in all of Genesis and all of Scripture and every relationship with anyone who has God is not the faithfulness of Abraham. It is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is still faithful to you even when you are not faithful to him. I say that confidently because we see that story after story after story after story. Failure after failure after failure after failure. God's still there. The only person who didn't, didn't fail was Jesus. But Jesus still said, hey God, are you sure this is what you want to do? Okay, I'll do it. But he still said, God, are you sure this is what you want to do? God is faithful. Oh, he's so faithful. What does it look like for you to follow him right now? I bet you already know. I'm going to pray, and since I went a little long, I'm going to go ahead and pray for the food so you all won't go, oh, Martin, he's going to come pray for food before you can eat, because I want you to go ahead and start eating. There's cornhole outside, spike ball, hang out, visit. Um, it's a good time just to be with family. Again, thank you, Jeremy, for smoking all the meat, Brittany, for pulling it all together, and for all of you. Uh, last week, we had almost no way signed up for the table or for room in the inn, and uh, by Wednesday, everything was signed up for. Thank you um, for doing